Well, our memory verse for this week has to do with the um, new dimension of study that we're going to be launching into, and that is a further study of the issue of the covenants. And so um, this verse really goes along with our lesson today, as you will see as the lesson unfolds. Um, but it's Psalm 89, 3 and 4, and it's a, it's a declaration of the Davidic covenant. And it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. So this is God speaking in, in his own voice. And God is saying that he made a covenant with his chosen, who, of course, was David, his servant. And what did he do in relationship to David, his servant? Well, he swore a promise to him. And so what we have here in this verse is a very clear description and definition of a covenant. A covenant is an oath-sworn promise. Okay, so what do we have here? We have a declaration that this is a covenant. I have made a covenant with my chosen. And now we have a description of what that covenant consists of and what its essential elements are. He says, I have sworn. And that's the first essential part of a covenant, as a covenant always involves swearing, without exception. There's no swearing, there's no covenant. And so it says, I have sworn to David my servant. Now here's the promise. The promise is, thy seed will I establish forever and build thy throne to all generations. So what we have here is we have an oath sworn promise. Now, as we've said, God makes lots of promises in the Bible. But there's only a very few of them that are oath sworn promises. And um, whenever you have an oath sworn promise, you always have a covenant. And if you don't have the swearing of an oath attached to the promise, you never have a covenant. So this verse is really uh, crucial in bringing out uh, the definition and the substance of what constitutes a biblical covenant. Now, with that in mind, we, I want to introduce our, our a new direction of our study today. We just got done studying chapter 7 in our Confession of Faith, which deals with the subject of God's covenant. And in chapter 7, we talked about um, the fact that um, God has a single method of salvation that he implemented in Genesis 3.15 and is going to carry through all the way to the second coming of Christ. And that method of salvation, the theologians call the covenant of grace. And as we said, it's not truly a covenant, though it certainly involves grace. And the reason why it's not a covenant is because there's no oath sworn promise. This term, the covenant of grace, is simply a theological construct. It's a theological term that's used to describe God's method of redemption. God has a method of saving men from the sin that they have fallen into, both through Adam and personally. And that method of salvation is called the um, covenant of, of, um, of redemption. 
by the theologians. Well, <clears throat> what we want to do today then is to begin to look at this so-called covenant of redemption in terms of the true biblical covenants, which in fact are the vehicle and the means whereby that covenant of redemption unfolds. And so God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation unfolds through the instrumentality of the five great covenants that are contained in the scriptures. Now, in order to study the doctrine of the covenants and those five covenants in particular, I have introduced to you a book entitled uh, The Garden of Eden, From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven by J.R. Williamson, God's Unfolding Plan and How It Relates to Christians Today. And I have given each of you a copy of it. I've asked you to read it. I will be reading out of it uh, quite extensively as I teach through it. Uh, I've never really taught through a book before like this. Uh, I've always just taught through the Bible or else I've used the Confession of Faith, which just gives us a basic outline and then we immediately go to the Bible. But here we have a book and, um, and uh, I want to teach through it. And the reason why I want to do this is because um, for, for a couple of decades now, I've been looking for a book that would teach uh, the biblical doctrine of the covenants accurately and properly. There are a huge number of books out there that teach the covenants and teach them erroneously. And the vast majority of those, of course, come from the Paedo-Baptists with their false notion of the nature of the covenants or from dispensationalists who have a substitute for the covenants, which is the dispensations. And as a result, there's a huge amount of confusion regarding the subject. And so we finally have a book written that accurately handles the subject of the covenants and therefore uh, we want to go through it together because when you understand the covenants, you will understand your Bible because the covenants are the central organizing framework of the scriptures. So what we want to do today then is to start out in chapter one of this book we're actually going to look at the introduction first, and then we're going to launch into chapter one and go as far as time permits. But um, in the introduction and in the first part of chapter one, um, Mr. Williamson talks about the need to study the covenants. And he used the illustration in the opening uh, section of his introduction about just seeing glimpses of a mountain range through the trees as you're driving uh, through a forest and then finally you get to the top of the hill and there's a vista point and suddenly you can see the entire mountain range in its totality without any um, obstruction and suddenly the whole thing comes together. You'd seen bits and pieces flashing through the trees but now you can see uh, the entirety of the mountain range. And in the same way, people see bits and pieces of their Bible. And they read a little here, and they read a little there, and they read a little somewhere else, but it all seems fragmented. And they really don't understand how it all fit together. And I know I struggled with that myself for many years as a young Christian. I loved the Word of God, and I was edified by the Word of God, but I really didn't understand it very well. And so what he says here in his introduction is that as he, as, as, a, as a younger Christian, 
He says, I had seen the individual pieces of God's great plan of redemption in my study of the scriptures, but they had always been relatively disconnected from one another. And that's kind of how most people view the Bible. After all, it's 66 different books and 40 different authors, and it spans a period of of 2,000 years. And so, therefore, it's pretty hard to take something that big and that diverse and put it together and and see the unity in it. And so, uh, what he declares here is something that I think most Christians have a problem with, is they see the Bible as a bunch of disconnected parts, and they don't see how it really fits together. He says, I had not seen them fit together in one mighty mountain range. The class that he had... Uh, by uh, Greg Nichols, who I know personally and is an excellent Bible teacher. If you can ever listen to any of his sermons on Sermon Audio, I'd strongly encourage you to do that. Um, He says, that class was the vehicle that carried me to a vista where I could behold the layout of Scripture in one wide-ranging sweep and see how the major mountain peaks of God's plan of redemption, namely the covenants, stand in relationship to each other and to the range of Scripture. So what he goes on to say then is that a study of the covenants will help you to see more clearly what God has done in planning and accomplishing redemption in Christ. What ties the Bible together? What ties the Bible together, the single unifying theme of the Bible is God's work of redemption. From Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22, the Bible is a story about how God saves man. That's the single unifying theme of the scripture. God saves man. And the thing that develops that theme and expands that theme and explains that theme are the various covenants. So whether it's the Noahic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic, the old or the new covenant, these covenants all are instituted for the purpose of setting forth, developing and advancing God's plan of salvation. So the redeeming work of Christ, he says, is simultaneously the central message of the scripture and the glue that binds its various parts, bringing them into harmony with one another. God's covenants are his means of unfolding the plan and applying the benefits of that redeeming work. Therefore, through the study of these covenants, which embody the great promise of salvation, We can come to see more clearly how the Bible fits together, and I might add more fully this plan of salvation that God has established for his people. And so this is the reason why we need to study uh, the covenants, because they, more than anything else, tie together and set before us that single plan of redemption, the so-called covenant of grace that we've been studying, that the Bible sets forth. And so what we see here is that he says in in chapter 1 on uh, page 15, he says, when you consider that the Bible is a collection of 66 books by over 40 authors spanning scores of centuries, the task of grasping its connectedness can seem absolutely overwhelming. And I would agree with that. I was overwhelmed for the first decade of my Christian life. Didn't really know how to put it all together. 
he says, this is exactly why it's important for us to understand the covenants. The covenants indicate to us how the story of redemption progresses and unfolds. Now, I used the analogy before, but I'm going to use it again. Your body has a skeleton. Your skeleton is the central organizing principle of your Bible, pardon me, of your body. And all your organs and all your muscles and all your blood vessels and everything hangs on your skeleton. And whenever you study anatomy, the first thing you study is the skeleton. Because that's the foundation of all other aspects of anatomy. Because everything attaches to and is organized by the skeleton. So once you understand the skeleton, you understand the overall structure of the body. Then you can go in and study the individual parts and see how they all fit together and relate. And so the covenants are the skeleton of the scripture. The covenants are the central organizing principle that everything hangs on, and especially that which God's plan of salvation hangs on. And so when you understand the covenants, you understand the plan of salvation, and you can't understand God's plan of salvation without understanding the covenants. So this then is the need for the study of the covenants. It helps us put the Bible together. It helps us understand God's single plan of redemption that ties the whole scripture together. And it's the central organizing principle of the word of God. So uh, without it, um, you would be um, as poor at understanding the Bible as a physician would be in understanding the body if he didn't understand um, the skeleton. Uh, He wouldn't know how everything fit together and related to each other. All right, so having then talked about the necessity of studying the covenants, secondly, he then goes on and he talks about the definition of a covenant. We want to spend some time here. We're going to look in our Bibles and we're going to consider together the definition of a covenant because if we don't get this right, we don't get the doctrine of the covenants right. And this, of course, um, is why I I gave you the memory verse that I gave you today in... um, Psalm 89 and and verse uh, 3 and 4. He says here uh, on page 16, he says, Covenants have at their heart an oath sworn by either one or both parties to the covenant. And I can't emphasize that strongly enough. The very heart of a covenant is the swearing of an oath. Now, he, he goes on and he develops that concept. He says, when a covenant commitment occurs, the term often used is cutting a covenant. When it talks about making a covenant, uh, in, in the Hebrew, the, the terminology there is the cutting of a covenant. And the reason why the word cutting a covenant is used is because animals were cut open and sacrificed as part of the ceremony and commitment of the covenant. And you see this especially in Genesis 15. Let's turn there for a moment, please. The book of Genesis, God is establishing the Abrahamic covenant. And in Genesis chapter 15, God uh, instructs Abraham to... um, Uh, Take some animals. Notice uh, Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 7. Genesis 15, 7. And God said unto Abraham, 
I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And Abram said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And God said to Abraham, take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, now here it is, and divided them. He cut them, cut them in half, cut them in the midst and laid each piece one opposite the other. So uh, half of one animal was here and half of the same animal was there and then uh, so, so you would have, um, uh, what's the list here? A heifer, half of one heifer on one side, and half of one heifer on the other side, and then you'd take a couple steps forward, and there'd be half of a she-goat on one side, and half of the she-goat on the other side, and then a few steps forward, there'd be a ram on one side, half of it, and the other half on the other side, and then a turtle dove on one side and a young pigeon on the other. So what you have is this row, of this, this row of, of animals that have been cut in half. And there's kind of like a road between them. And you walk that road between those cut animals. Okay? And what you would be saying in this case is that, um, you know, w- when you made a covenant with somebody, you would together walk through these divided animals and out the other side. And you would be saying by doing so that the Lord do to me what's been done to these animals if I don't keep this covenant. So notice it says, and so God tells him to do all this, verse 10, and he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one opposite the other, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Adam, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, know of a surety, that's God speaking now, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they shall come out with a great substance. Predicting, of course, the Egyptian uh, enslavement and uh, deliverance. Verse 15, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now, this smoking furnace and this burning lamp was God. Uh, It was representative of God, and, and God went between the pieces all by himself. Abraham didn't go between the pieces. And so this was a unilateral covenant. God was binding himself. And notice in verse 18, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaims, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God made this covenant with Abraham, and it involved the cutting of animals. Okay, And what we see is that in almost every covenant, there is a sacrifice of some kind. Now, the second thing he talks about here is that covenants also often involve the commemorative meal, where they would make a covenant and they would sit down and eat a meal together, and the meal would be the sealing and the sign of the covenant, as well as the sacrifice. Okay? 
And so in Genesis 26, we see this taking place. The book of Genesis chapter 26. And uh, we'll look together at verses 26 to 30. And Abimelech is going to make a covenant with um, Isaac. In Genesis 26, 26. Then Abimelech went to him, that is to Isaac, from Gerar, and Ahaznath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing you hate me? And sent me away from you. And they said, We saw certainly the Lord was with thee. And we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee. Notice they recognized that the swearing of an oath was involved in making a covenant. That thou will do us no hurt. Here's the terms. Here's the promises. That thou will do us no hurt as we have not touched thee. And we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. So there is the ceremonial meal. And it says, uh, verse 31, And they rose up betimes in the morning, and swore one to another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed in peace. So there was the oath-sworn promise that they wouldn't do each other harm. And in this case, there was this ceremonial meal that was the means of sealing the uh, covenant between them. No animal sacrifice here, just the ceremonial meal. And so what we see then is that these covenants were taken very seriously. And the violation of a covenant... And the obligations one had entered into when they um, entered into a covenant um, was really a threat to the well-being of those who violated that covenant. And so, for example, in Jeremiah 34, verses 8 to 22, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 34, uh, God threatens Israel. And the reason why he threatens Israel in Jeremiah 34 is because they had violated his covenant. And so in Jeremiah 34 and verse 8, God brings an indictment against Israel. And the indictment is, you didn't keep the covenant, therefore, you're in deep trouble. Jeremiah 34, verses 8 to 22. Jeremiah 34, 8. This is the word that came unto Jeremiah from the Lord after that King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them, that every man should let his manservant and every man his maidservant, being a Hebrew or a Hebrewist, go free, that none should serve himself of them to wit of a Jew his brother. Now when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of them any more, they obeyed and let them go. Now this covenant that they entered into was nothing more than just a declaration they were going to obey the law of God. Because the law of God was very clear that if a Jew Was sold into slavery to another Jew, he would only serve seven years and then he would be released. And you couldn't hold one any longer than that. And um, they had held these, and uh, there had been um, this this, uh, Zedekiah, 
King Zedekiah had, had recognized that people weren't obeying this law of God. So he says, let's make a covenant among ourselves that we're going to obey the law of God. And um, they did so, and they released their servants. So far, so good. But, verse 11. And afterward they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into a subjection for servants and for handmaids. Therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. What covenant is that? It's the old covenant, isn't it? Okay. One that was made at Mount Sinai. Out of the house of bondmen, saying, At the end of seven years let ye go every man his brother a Hebrew, which has been sold unto thee, and when he has served thee six years, thou shalt let him go free from thee. But your fathers hearken not to me, neither incline their ear. And ye were now turned, and had done right in my sight, in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor. And ye had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. But you turned and polluted my name, and caused every man his servant, and every man his handmaid, whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure to return, and brought them to subjection, to be unto you servants and for handmaids. Therefore, you're in trouble. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, you have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine, and I will make you to be removed unto all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem and the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat to the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. Because that's what happened to the other animals who were cut in half. You remember, Abram had to drive those fowls off. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes will I give unto the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army which are gone up from you. Behold, I will command, saith the Lord, and cause them to return to the city and they shall fight against it and take it and burn it with fire and I will make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. So, bottom line is, covenants are taken very seriously. And if you made promises in that covenant and you break them, then God uh, takes action. And it was always the case that when a covenant was made and one of the parties broke it, they didn't get away with it. They were punished. And the punishment that was brought upon them was the punishment they imprecated themselves with when they made the oath when they made the O-sworn promise, when they made the covenant. And so you see time and again people in the Bible saying, God do more so to me if I do not do blah de blah And what they're saying is, you know, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, may God kill me. So the point is, is that covenants are not just a casual promise. You know, you, you're going to go skating with me next Thursday. Yeah, I'm going skating with you next Thursday. And then you don't go. Well, you broke your promise, but you you hadn't made a covenant. (laughs) When you get married, you're making an oath sworn promise. You're making a covenant with your wife. Don't break your covenant. God takes that very seriously. 
Okay, so anyway, what are we looking for as far as the basic definition of a covenant? Covenants define relationships between the parties that participate in the covenant. And covenants are oath-sworn promises. They often involve a commemorative meal. They often involve a sacrifice of an animal. And they always involve sanctions. That is, if you break them, here's what's going to happen to you. So, in general terms, covenants and scriptures are solemn commitments between two parties. They are sworn commitments, which include promises and responsibilities on the part of one or both parties, depending upon if it's a unilateral covenant or a bilateral covenant. Now, I want to look at several passages with you to um, really cement into your mind the biblical definition of a covenant, okay? Now, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses seven, verse 72 and 73. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Uh, Zechariah here is speaking of the birth of John the Baptist. And, of course, he's the herald of Jesus Christ. And Zechariah is talking about the birth of Christ. And in Luke chapter 1, verse... Um, Well, let's start out at verse 69, verse 68, verse 68. Luke 1, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us, Now, I want you to pay real close attention to the next two verses. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. And now we get the definition of a covenant. Verse 73, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham. What was the covenant? It was an oath sworn promise. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God is going to remember His holy covenant. What is that covenant? It is the oath which He swore to our father Abraham. And here's the oath that He would grant to us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. So He summarizes some of the blessings of the, of the Abrahamic covenant there. But what He says, He understood very clearly, that a covenant was an oath sworn promise. All right? Now let's turn, please, to Psalm 89. Book of Psalms, 89th Psalm. And this is our memory verse. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. Now, what the psalmist is doing is he's praising God for his faithfulness. All right? Verse 1, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. 
Now he's going to describe a manifestation of the faithfulness of God, and that's the Davidic covenant. Notice verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. Well, what constitutes a covenant? Here it is. I have sworn to David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And so one of the manifestations of the faithfulness of God is that he keeps his covenant promises. And his covenant promises are oath-sworn promises. In this case, God has sworn an oath to David that David will never lack a son to sit on the throne of the kingdom of God. And of course, that was always the case. David always had a son on the throne. And the final son is Jesus Christ. And Christ is going to sit on the throne forever. And that's why it's so critical that Jesus be the son of David. And so Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's the first verse in Matthew 1.1. The generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why was Jesus Christ tied to those two people? Because of the two covenants that were made with him. David was promised that he would always have a king as his son on the throne. And Abraham was promised that in his seed would all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Jesus is Abraham's seed and David's son. Did I, I didn't say that right. G, did I say it right? Jesus is Abraham's seed and Jesus is David's son. That's what I meant to say if I said that fine. Um, so anyway, now turn over, same Psalm, Psalm 89 to verse 34. Verse 34 to 35. Now what the psalmist does in Psalm 89 is he spends a lot of time on the Davidic covenant. All right? He introduced it in verse 3 and 4. And so in verses 19 to 37, which we're not going to read, he talks about the Davidic covenant and all the things that, that it contains and the blessings that are going to flow out of it. All right? But notice, if you will, verses 34 and 35. In verse 34, God says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. What is the covenant? Verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. So once again, the oath sworn promise to David that he would have a son that would sit on the throne forever. And so uh, Zechariah in Luke 1 says, the covenant with Abraham is an oath sworn promise. The psalmist in Psalm 89 says the Davidic covenant is an oath sworn promise. He says it twice. Now turn to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. And we'll look together at verses 8 to 10. In Psalm 105 and verse 8, it says of God... You notice verse 7, it says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Verse 8, He, God, has remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant He made with Abraham, now notice, and His oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance, etc. 
So once again, we have the oath sworn promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this case, the promise that's being focused on is the promise of the land. And you remember the three things that were promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, right? That he would be the father of many nations, number one. Number two, that in his seed, all the nations would be blessed. And number three, he would get the land of Canaan. Those are the three promises that were made to Abraham, okay? And so here they focused on one of those promises. And so over and over again, and, and we saw that when, when um, Abimelech got together with Isaac and made the covenant with him, they swore a promise. And every time we run into a covenant, we're going to see that it always involves an oath sworn promise. So we're going to stop there because we're out of time. So we've seen the necessity of studying covenants. It helps us put together the plan of redemption in the Bible and the covenants are the way in which that plan of redemption is developed and unfolded. And therefore, the covenants are the unifying, organizing structure of the Bible and its explanation of the plan of God's salvation. And then we've seen the definition of a covenant. A covenant is an oath sworn promise which defines the relationships between two parties uh, with promises and with um, uh, responsibilities. And so, but the very core of it, if you just remember nothing else, remember this, a covenant is an oath-sworn promise, and the covenants are the central organizing principle of the Bible. If you get that, you've got a huge amount today, okay? So that's where we're at, and next week we'll pick up with the five major covenants between God and men. We're going to see what those covenants are. He lists them here, and then we're going to look at the marks of the covenants, the characteristics of them. Okay, so God willing, we'll finish uh, chapter one uh, next week, and we will move on perhaps into chapter two. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the clarity and the sufficiency, uh, the beauty and the balance of the word of God. Father, um, What we have here is a marvelous, divine piece of architecture, verbal architecture which describes the mighty works of God in all of their fullness and in in all of their beauty and balance. Lord, help us to rightly understand that structure, that beauty, that balance, so that we, uh, when we read our Bibles, understand them and how they apply and what the various parts mean and what they mean in relationship to each other. Father, we pray that we would be better Christians because we would be better able to understand your word and will for our lives. And Lord, even more than that, that we would be better worshipers. May these things, Father, provoke us to worship as we see the marvelous unfolding plan of salvation through your divine covenants. In Jesus' name, amen.